And the minute I saw the haematologist's face, I knew it was bad news. And she said, Deborah, I'm really sorry to tell you, you have an incurable form of leukemia. I bought a one-way ticket. I didn't buy a return ticket. I was trying a drug that had only been tried in 80 humans, and I was trying it in combination with something else. The trial I entered actually was the first trial that they had after a couple of patients died testing the drug. Have you ever wondered how successful businesses and thought leaders keep landing those big media opportunities and keep the buzz going around what they're up to? It's not just by chance. They're all using the power of storytelling. I'm Nicola J. Rowley, and with over 25 years in the media as both a journalist and PR expert, I'm here to help you unlock the story potential for both you and your brand. Everything starts with a story. This is the Power of Storytelling podcast. Hello there. Welcome to the latest episode of the Power of Storytelling. I am delighted to have my guest with me today. We started out, well, I know she had a a major background in journalism before I even became a journalist. But we started out as journalists. We were working in newsrooms together. We started out at IRN, Independent Radio News, as reporters and newsreaders. And then we went on to work at the BBC News Channel, as it is now, um, working on the late shift. So we go back a long way. Obviously, we stayed in touch, like on social media and all of those kind of things. And I saw this story, her incredible story, and it really is incredible, unfolding year by year by year. And I wanted to bring you that story today and her to be able to tell you her story in her own words. I do have to mention that if you are currently going through any form of cancer diagnosis, or if you know anyone that is, there is a trigger warning to go with this episode. However, what I really want to focus on with this episode is growth, because unless she'd had a growth mindset, she wouldn't be with us today. The one and only Deborah Henderson. Oh, thanks, Nicola. It's so good to see you. And this is the first time we have seen each other in, oh, gosh, it must be over a decade. Yeah, it you know, has we been. did different things, went and had babies, you know, did different careers. Um, I moved to Australia and, yeah, fantastic to see you almost in the flesh. Yeah, almost. We're almost there. Tell me a little bit about, because you moved to Australia and then I think 2011, if I'm right in thinking, everything changed for you. And it was just before Christmas as well. I know that your daughter at that time was two. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I'd had pneumonia a few months before and was really, really sick. And um, at the time, my doctors had said, oh, you know, you're obviously run down. You're working too hard. I was 37. But, you know, I had three children under under seven and a, a sort of two-year-old two at that point. And I'd found this little sort of pea-sized lump behind my ear. And I actually thought I was allergic to the guinea pigs. Um, I just 
had got it in my head that it wasn't anything to worry about. I was fine. I was tired, but it was just, you know, an allergy. And um, I'd been, I, I'd gone to the doctors in December with my daughter who had an ear infection. And my GP said, Deb, you came a few months ago about the lump in, in behind your ears. It's still there. And I said, oh, yeah. And I've, do you know, I've got some more. I mean, the, I'm sure it's the guinea pigs. I'm sure. And she literally put her hands on my neck and she was, oh have you got health insurance? Um, you need to go and see someone today. And this was oh, seven days before Christmas in 2011. And I went to straight to the, to the private hospital. We have a very good public system here. We also have a very good private system. And I went straight there and literally the same day they put me in for a, bi- a needle biopsy on, the, on this pea-sized lump behind my, behind my neck. And I had then five days of waiting for results. And, you know, worst, I actually think of all the very, very many years of, of, of what I went through, that was probably the worst five days. Um, and I was very busy by that time I was working in Australian politics and I was just, you know, I was working too many hours. I was rushing around children and the sort of wheels were coming off. And it was the Tuesday that I went back in. So I'd had the whole weekend and the minute I saw the hematologist's face, I knew it was bad news. And she said, Deborah, I'm really sorry to tell you, you have an incurable form of leukemia. And with your markers, it's an aggressive form of leukemia. And um, we don't know how you've got it because the average patient with this leukemia is a 70-year-old man. We never, you know, never see anyone under 50 and you're under 40 and it's rare in women. And I just, you know, room starts spinning and for anyone and, uh, you know, I'd never wish, wish that on anyone, but people will know how it feels that you just everything falls apart you you have you've gone from being normal you're a mum you know my first thought was you know but she's only two and I that's what I said to the doctor but she's only two what how, what do you you know how how long how long have I got and she said the average person with your markers lives for five years we will give you standard treatment, but you will keep relapsing. And, and this, this leukemia, which is called chronic lymphocytic leukemia, will just keep coming back and it will become more and more aggressive and more resistant to treatment. So I literally went home with a brochure on the disease. Oh, she said, not, don't Google. You know, I'm a journalist. You can't tell me not to Google, but, you know, don't do Dr. Google. Um, here are some good sources of information, um, and I will see you. We're going to carry on doing more testing, and I'll see you um, after Christmas, and uh, we'll look at how quickly you need treatment. Did you go through radiotherapy and chemotherapy and the the usual treatments? And all the time your mind is spinning because they've told you that it's incurable. Yeah, and and I at that stage had to go, well, the children are too young. I, I need. I don't need to live forever, but I need to see them become adults. That was my absolute. I don't care if if I have to go through every single treatment. Any parent will know that you just will do everything to be there for your children. Um, and I want them to. I wanted my daughter to remember me. You know, five two. If five years should be seven, it was just. Yeah, no, it was a horrific situation to find myself in. Then the weirdest thing was that they said, oh, we're not going to treat you because once we start treating you, it becomes resistant. So we're going to put you in a period of 
watching. So now you've been told you've got a cancer that's going to kill you, but we're not actually going to treat you until you become quite sick. Because the minute we give you chemotherapy, it will put you in remission. But when you relapse, you're a ticking time bomb and we don't, the next thing is a bone marrow transplant. And then when, you know, there's a good chance you could die having that. So it was all sort of very, very hectic. And I actually didn't have chemotherapy for 10 months after diagnosis. So it was quite a quite a mental challenge to go, wow, I'm doing nothing except getting sicker. Did you have symptoms and could you feel yourself getting worse? Because that's almost worse in a way if you don't have that because then you're carrying on. I was getting like random infections and I'd get a cold and it would I'd be really sick with a cold and um my 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 neck was I've got a very funny sister who from the you can probably hear the accent I know it's a strange Australian accent now but I'm from the northeast of England originally and my sister was sort of trying to cheer me up at one point and she said she said Deborah you look like you've swallowed a boomerang <laughs> And it did. My my neck just my neck just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and all the glands in my body got bigger. So I couldn't put my arms down. I couldn't like it was just it, it was pretty gross. It wasn't um and and just fatigue. So I carried on working because I have to work, and and I think I I think if I hadn't kept working, I would have just become a sick person, and cancer would have dominated my life. So I kept working as long as I could, but you know I'd be doing. Um, a, a meeting in the afternoon and I'd be falling asleep like <laughs> all my colleagues would be like oh you know it's okay she, she's got cancer she's you know she'll she'll perk up in a bit we'll get her a cup of tea she'll be fine <laughs> it was you know as a, a sort of journalist yourself you have that dark humor and I had some really really good work colleagues who who helped get me through but um, I think I went from being devastated and in a in a ball over Christmas that two weeks was horrific to okay, well, first of all, I don't believe it's not curable. Like, you've got to give me some hope. There must be something going on somewhere. Um, and secondly, if if I've got five years, then I'm going to have a bloody good five years and I'm going to, you know, make the most of it. And I'm going to make so mem- many memories for my children um, that, that, you know, I'll, I'll live a whole lifetime in five years if I have to. At what point did you say no? I mean, I hear that you were like saying that right from the very beginning, pretty much. You were just like, okay, this is what you're telling me. But actually, I don't get it. I don't believe that this is what is meant to happen for me. So therefore, I'm going to look for something, that hope. I'm going to have that hope. And with my growth mindset, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to find something that is potentially going to help me. It was funny because I didn't find out that there was something called clinical trials until after. So I had the chemotherapy. It worked. Gosh, it was amazing. I had, you know, when I had it, I couldn't believe how well. And actually, when when I got well, which was immediately as I even as I was having the cycles of chemo, I could start moving. I hadn't even realized that I'd been moving my whole body. I hadn't been able to move my head. So I hadn't actually comprehended how sick I'd got. I followed the course, I, I did the chemo, I got into remission, and it was when they told me it was coming back. And it came back really quickly. So I got six months after chemo, and they thought I'd get two years, but it just, you know, came straight back. And um, that was when I thought, 
well, I'm in real trouble now. Like they, they were, they weren't lying when they said it was going to kill me. Um, and that was when the journalist in me kicked in. Like I would not be here had I not learned how to seek information and how to analyze data and I've become a medical journalist Nicola I mean I can read I I have I've written I've co-authored papers I've been you know I've been I've, I've become a human like it's it's actually quite crazy I I started going to hematology conferences around the world you know everything's going on in America it was shortly after chemotherapy had failed, or it worked, but the disease came back, that I, um, they were prepping me for a bone marrow transplant. The thing that they were saying to me was, we just might not be able to get you back to where you are now. That's the problem we have with bone marrow. There is a really good chance it could kill you within, you know, 100 days. You will be in hospital for a very long time. You'll be coming back to hospital for a very long time. And there's still a really good chance you're going to die. So it was just like a really, really bad time. And I'll never forget, I opened the Australian Financial Review magazine here, and I've still got it. I kept the copy of the magazine because it was an article about Ron Walker. Now, Ron Walker it was very famous um, Australian businessman. He was treasurer of the Liberal Party. He brought the Grand Prix to the Australian Grand Prix to Melbourne. Very, very prominent businessman. And I didn't know he was dying of melanoma. And he had gone public with his story because he had gone to America with melanoma. He was terminal. And he had got onto a clinical trial. And he had treated getting onto the clinical trial like every business transaction he'd ever done. It was fascinating reading the article. And it had PET scans. It showed you his before, where he was literally going to die within months and an all-clear scan after he'd tried this clinical trial. Um, and I remember reading it and going, clinical trials? Why do I not know about clinical trials? Like, what, what, where have I been? Why haven't I been, you know, in the medical world at this point? This was after, after chemo. I've been, you know, I've been in patient groups. I've been dealing with charities in Australia. But no one has mentioned clinical trials to me. I, it hadn't even occurred to me. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm not a millionaire businessman, but, you know, I'll do anything to stay alive. And if I need to go to America and find a drug, I'm going to do that. So I literally got on the email and I emailed the top doctor in my disease in the world. Um, at that time, it was Thomas Kipps at the University of California, San Diego. And I said, I'm a mother of three children. I need to see them grow up. I want to come and get a second opinion from you. I'm about, I'm about to have a bone marrow transplant in Australia. I'm scared to death. Will you see me? And he literally emailed me back and said, if you can be here next week, I've got an appointment at four o'clock. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to America. <laughs> So at this point, Nicola, you can imagine, I decided to take out my BBC pension and I take all my life insurance. I didn't own a house in Australia, but I just drew down everything. I thought, right, no, I'm doing this. I'm going to, you know, be poor, but I'm going to hopefully still be alive. And um, I went to America and um, thought I was going to die on the on the car journey down from um, LAX down to UCSD in this mad Uber. And I thought, oh, this is it. I'm, I'm That's it. I'm going to like die in a car crash. It's not going to be cancer that gets me. And I get to, uh, I get to the hospital. I see Thomas Kipps and he goes, why haven't they told you about ABT 199? 
it's a drug and it, it's been invented in Melbourne. That's where you're from. And they've got a clinical trial of it in Melbourne and it's doing really well. It's looking phenomenal. Um, it could be the blockbuster drug that we've been looking for in CLL. Why do you not know about this? And I was like, because uh, I don't. And um, he said, well, don't have a bone marrow transplant. It's just not what you should be doing. You may need, still need to have it, but you need to try this drug. We can't give it to you here. But, you know, come tomorrow, come and learn all about it. We In America, they recruit for clinical trials. They don't recruit for clinical trials in Australia. In, in Britain, they do, but it's hard. Like, it's really hard to get on. Very few patients choose to do a phase one clinical trial. You have to really be dying. Like, they're not all good trials. They're not all good drugs. Um, and he, he said, come to this conference. And so the next day I go to the conference, I am literally sitting in the back row of this conference, really, really jet lagged. And there's a Scottish doctor talking. And I've actually got a photo of him because he had all these slides on and I turned to the patient next to me and I said who's that and they said Professor John Gribben from Bart's Hospital in London he's like one of the top doctors and um, John's become a friend and he finished talking and he said he's never done this before he came and sat in the back row next to me and he normally sits in the front row don't judge me but I had a koala on my jacket because I was trying to meet up with other patients and I said I'll, I'll be the the blonde wearing the koala and he said, you've come a long way. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, but you're a, are you a carer? And you'd think someone my age would be a carer. And I said, no, no, I'm a patient. And he said, oh, but you haven't had treatment. You know, 38. I was at that stage, I was 40. I said, oh, yeah, no, I've had treatment. I've had a failed chemo. I failed FCR. And he said, oh. And he said, so you're here looking for a trial. And I said, yeah. I said, I know it's my only option. And he said, have you still got your British passport? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, if you can move back to London in six weeks' time, I can get you on a trial of a new drug called ABT199 and obinutuzumab. And I don't know why they don't, you don't know about this because it was invented in Melbourne. Isn't, you know, that's, oh, honestly, it was sort of mind-blowing at this point. He said, go back to Australia, talk to your doctors. Maybe they can get it for you there. You shouldn't have to uproot your family. Um, came back to Australia. They couldn't get me the drug. They did admit it, it existed, um, but the trial had closed and 80 patients had got it. And yes, it looked exciting. And yes, if I said, as I said to my doctor here, if you were me, what would you do? And he said, I'd be getting on that plane. I remember when you moved back to the UK, your story seems to kind of span around Christmases because I remember <laughs> you had wrapped all the presents for your three children and you had them in piles and you didn't know whether you were still going to be there the following year. And so you were having the Christmas as if it was the last ever Christmas because you just didn't know at that stage what you didn't no. know. And that really stayed with me. I think I was probably, it must have been round about the time where James was about to come along or he'd just come along. And it just, it struck such a chord with me that you were having to do this and you were going through it at the same time. That must have been so hard. It was, um, oh, I mean, I've got I've got a girlfriend with birthday cards to the children with being 21, engagement, like cards written from me. I've got a, I've got, oh gosh, I hope my um, son never sees this. I've got a letter to, I was convinced my son may have been gay. 
he's now 19 and he's got a girlfriend, but there's a letter and, you know, may still be gay, maybe one day, um, you know, open, very open-minded. But I remember giving my girlfriend two letters, one of which was Mummy Always Knew and I absolutely love you and I just want you to be happy and, you know, and, and another, you know, but I wanted him, if he was gay, to know that absolutely I would never have an issue with that and I was always always proud of him and I just, you know, so, but I remember giving it to my girlfriend and saying, please make sure you give him the right letter because if he's not gay, <laughs> he's going to probably need counselling going, my mother always thought I was gay. <laughs> I had to keep living... But it was always, it was always, you know, it may not work. And when I, so I get back to Australia and then I literally had to move to London. And, you know, I came back to the BBC because can't stop working. So, you know, I may as well, I may as well keep busy. And I remember sort of, I bought a one-way ticket. I didn't buy a return ticket. I was trying a drug that had only been tried in 80 humans and I was trying it in combination with something else. So there was Good chance. Uh, the trial I entered actually was the first trial that they had after a couple of patients died testing the drug. They, they were doing a dose escalation and they they escalated it to, to a point that two, two patients died. So it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And there's photos of me, um, you know, taking the drug for the first time. And I called it, um, it, it by this time it had a name and it was called Venetoclax. And I called it Sven. It was like my my Swedish lover that I'd come around the world to, to meet, but I didn't know if he was actually a psychopath and was going to kill me or whether it was going to be, you know, a dream, dream relationship for the rest of my life. But... Um, yeah, it worked. It wasn't an easy journey. It wasn't just a case of, right, I'm I'm starting a trial. Everything's going to kick into place and everything's going to be great and rosy and overnight everything's going to sort itself out. You also had to, in between doing the trial, you had to take on a quite extraordinary journey because obviously your family are back in Australia. So you were almost commuting back and forth for a period of two and a half years. And I like to get my head around that, I mean, Traveling to Australia takes it out of you the best of times, let alone when you're really, really sick. Oh, I know. And I was lucky because I, I was in London for a period of seven months on the trial and the children came twice. The first time I didn't see them was, it was nine weeks and that was horrible. Um, it was weird. It was, you know, we've got all this now. We've got FaceTime, we've got Zoom. I could see them, but I couldn't smell them. And I've never had that weird like it actually, it was it was killing me that I couldn't smell my children, let alone touch them. Or and I could see my my daughter was only five at this point, and she was very very distressed. And so I was in London for seven months, and then I got into remission. And I said, I've got to go back to I've got to go back to Australia. I can't like you've got to let me go back. And they said, Yeah, you can go back, but you have to be here every month to the day to give a blood test and pick up your drug. And this was normal treatment. So it's like me taking four, four tablets a day. Um, and literally I'd leave Melbourne on a Tuesday afternoon and get to London Wednesday morning. I'd go to Bart's hospital, give them a blood test, pick up the drug, stay with a friend, go back to the, ho- uh, to the airport Thursday morning and be back in Melbourne on a Friday night. And I did that every month for 10 months in a row. And then it was every three months for another 18 months. It was crazy. 
And I can tell you every movie from 2016, I didn't miss a single one. Um, I bet. Oh, my gosh. And during that time, I mean, you mentioned that you'd gone into remission. So it worked. And I think what was so lovely is when you were able to post that it had been a success. But I know also that a lot of the other people that were on the same trial as you they didn't make it. It, it. That wasn't their story. Well, it was more the people that couldn't get the drug. So I was obviously, by this stage, I'd become quite a public. And I suppose my background in, in media and politics, I was actually a really bad person to not be getting her own way with the or, or with with the health system. So I, um, I went on a bit of, of a personal crusade to get this Australian invented drug listed on our, our PBS, like you know, nice funding in, in, in the UK. Because it was working for me uh, and I was becoming so public and I was putting myself on daytime chat shows and I'm taking my trial drug and I'm saying it's, you know, it's like taking four Panadol a day and it is keeping me alive. And there are people dying. There are people dying because they cannot get this drug. And I've only I've only got it because I've got a British passport, and uh, the wonderful NHS has looked after me. Why can't we get it? So what was happening was people who were in a similar situation to me, younger patients who had children, were having to have bone marrow transplants, and some of them died. And there was one person in particular, and I won't sort of identify, because, but you know his family does know that, um, and has allowed me to tell the story. But our children were exactly the same age, and when venetoclax was turned down by our pharmaceutical advisory committee, which advises on funding of drugs for the third time, I was you know all set to put myself on the front page with his widow. And our children all there. Like it was so unfair. It was so, and I was by this stage, I was obviously, I was very tired myself and I was sort of increasingly getting desperate to get the drug in Australia, but equally just so frustrated that we knew it worked and yet it was really about money um, and that's why it wasn't, wasn't funded. Um, but then it did get funding. But and this is I, the thing, I, you you managed through doing that, using the media for positive change, you were able, through telling your story, mm-hmm. to be able to make this massive breakthrough in Australian healthcare. The drug company later told me they it would have got funded, but it was funded a year earlier than they anticipated. And that meant 490 patients got it in that year that wouldn't have got it. So I, I do feel, I, you know, you do good things in your life but this was this was really probably my story that I was just so pleased so pleased it finally was listed and they were amazing you know it's now being tested on other cancers on solid cancers on like it is an amazing drug it switches off the protein that feeds the cancer and so the cancer dies without harming anything else so it's just a, one of those I was very fortunate to, to get it but of course the story didn't end so this is 2017. I've been told for so long that I've got no detectable disease. I have bone marrow biopsies, which are hideous, but I have them all the time. And they can't find any cancer cells. And it's all exciting, but I have to stay on the drug. And 2017 comes along. I've by this stage been on the drug good two two years, two and a half years. And um, I'm just eligible to get it in Australia. So I've actually got a camera crew filming me going to the Peter Mac pharmacy to pick up my drug 
for the first time and I'm in tears because I cannot believe I'm literally walking to my hospital to get the drug. I'm not having to fly to London and back. And I get there and I get a phone call from my doctor who says, Deb, can you come up and see me at the hospital? And my blood test is back and so is the cancer. At this point, I remember going, you are kidding me. So I get the drug in Australia and it stops working for me. Like, what? (laughs) So then I'm back to, well, what's next? What's the cure? This obviously wasn't the cure. It's, you know, it's good. I'm still alive. I'm alive beyond where I would have been alive without the drug. And, you know, hey, I've been to London a lot. (laughs) And, you know, and and it was funny because I did actually start taking children with me, like one, I've got three children, so one at a time. So you know, they've, they've had they've had a really lovely time. In that, um, you know, my my son, I did start doing this special thing when they turned thirteen. My eldest, I said, look, you can have a party in a new computer, or you can come to London with mummy on on my trip, and then you can choose any city in Europe to turn thirteen in. And he said can we go to Rome? Can we go to Rome, mum? And I was like, yes, let's go to Rome. So he flew, we did the hospital thing, and then we went to Rome and we had his 13th. And then I came back and my and my middle son was like, can I go to New York for my 13th? <laughs> like, don't really need to go to America, but, but I'm going to make it happen. And we did. We went to New York and I did a medical conference. <laughs> but um, it was back on that, What what's next? Um and that was back on the clinical trials and back on research, back doing the hematology conferences, which were really just an excuse for me to see every top hematologist in the world and every scientist and say, what's next? What are you doing? What should I do? Um, and that's where I found out about this new technology called CAR-T, which is, um, oh, don't make me spell it out, actually. But it's it's t it's a T cell modifier, and you basically genetically modify T cells and then put them back in you. I was all set to go to America to have that treatment. It would have cost about one point two million dollars. I wasn't sure where I was going to get that from, but um, but it, I was quite far down the route of of doing it um, when I was asked to go and speak at Parliament House in Canberra. And this is how my weird life works. Um, And I'm on a plane with a haematologist who I didn't know who was traveling with me. And he said, oh, Deb, you know, I know your story well. How are you now? I said, oh, I'm relapsing. And he said, what's next? And I said, I'm going to America to have CAR-T. And he said, we've got that coming here. What drug are you on? And I said, oh, I haven't changed drugs yet. And he said, well, as long as you go on to ibrutinib, if you've got stable disease in six months' time, we can give you it here. How did my doctor know this? And that's what happened. I went on to ibrutinib. I went into remission. And six months later to the day, they put me in the trial. And I had, And by this time, we're in 2020. <laughs> so oh, thank God I didn't have to go to America. So we're in COVID lockdown. And I had my T cells harvested and sent to America and reprogrammed. And they brought, sent them back. And in September 2020, they infused them into me. And 28 days later, I had no leukemia. And I'm now three years past that. And I've been off all drugs for two and a half years. And it's incredible. And only six of us in the world got that. Three of us in Australia and three in the US. And as far as I know, we're all doing really, really well. That is so incredible because that's part of the story that I 
wasn't aware of. I knew all the rest of it, but I didn't know that you'd relapsed and then had that because obviously we were going through the pandemic at the time. Yes. And your children now, 19, 16, 14. Yeah. That's so incredible, isn't it? 12 years that your little girl has... Mm. She's had an extra 12 years with you as her mum. And that's why I always say to my doctors, look, I'm not going to be greedy. Don't, you know, they're like, you're going to have a normal lifespan. Stop going on it. They keep saying to me, stop living as if you're going to die because you're going to run out of money. (laughs) And and it's true. Do you know my phone? I realized on my phone, I looked at it the other day, I've got 110,000 photos. I've got, I've spent my life recording as if, I'm not going to be here. And that's a very bizarre way to live, but it's also quite a joyous way to live. Like I do things and I don't sweat the small stuff anymore. Like the things that probably helped me get sick. And I do think probably stress contributed to that cell changing and they don't know what causes it, but I was very, very stressed when I actually got cancer. And that's the first thing I tell anyone if they get a cancer diagnosis is just cut out stress in your life and you know it did lead to my marriage breaking down and I've repartnered and this beautiful man came into my life and I'm still good friends with the children's father and it's been a very weird story and a very weird journey but I probably wouldn't change it I think it's made me live a better 12 years and if Tasha gets to 18, okay, it's not job done. I'll probably try and squeeze in a few more years. But gosh, I could never have expected to be in this position. Never. It is an incredible story. And there have been moments. And you say to me, oh, like they said that that would never happen in a month of Sundays. You know, it, he never would have come off stage and sat next to you at the back of the room. You wouldn't have been sat on a plane traveling to Canberra. And then it turns out that a chance conversation. At what point do you think, actually, the universe has really had my back here, but it's had my back so that I can help those 490 others, all of the people further down the line, it's going to change their trajectory as well. Absolutely. And I do... I do, whether it's a guardian angel or whether you're religious and you believe in God, I, I definitely, it's bigger than me and it's too random to be random. And so I do think I've been given an, a huge gift. There was no reason, you know, I, when I, I the, the one point I, I knew I was dying was with the pneumonia. And because they didn't know I had leukemia at that stage, I was very close to death by the time they got me to hospital. And I remember seeing my little toddler and my baby crawling around with a big nappy on and and I remember seeing them in the bedroom and looking at them as I was struggling to breathe thinking because we'd had a doctor out and they misdiagnosed and they missed pneumonia so I was literally dying in my bed and I remember looking at the these two precious things and thinking to myself I am so sorry that I'm not going to be there to see you grow up but I am so sick I just need to go to sleep and that has actually given me a lot of comfort as well. Like, and I've told people that who are in palliative care, um, I'm, you know, I'm. We don't talk about dying enough. We don't talk about good deaths. I'd already, you know, I had to do an advanced care directive before I had the CAR T because I'd, you know, lost people who had CAR T within two days of having CAR T. It's a really dangerous thing to have, and it, the technology is getting better, but it's still a brand new technology, and. Um, 
My role, I think, is to give people hope and reassurance. And because I am a communication, because I can write, I've kept my blog and I direct, you know, certainly CLL patients to it to give them hope. Because when I was diagnosed, on the day I was diagnosed, to be told you have an incurable cancer that will kill you. I also now do doctor communication training (laughs) because no one should ever say that. There should always be hope. Hope is so, so important. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's such a beautiful story. If anyone's listening to this and they'd like to connect with you, find out more about what it is that you do and read more about your story because I know that you had like incredible blogs that you were writing as you were going through this whole journey where can they find you? So the blog um, it, and it literally only focuses on the two clinical trials but it's um, abtandme.com and abt being the first drug that I tried. Absolutely incredible thank you so much for joining us here today on the power of storytelling podcast. We will see you again next time.